God is our help in ages past, our help for years to come. If you have your Bible, please turn to Matthew chapter 24. As you know, our congregation knows that we work through a Bible uh, book just systematically, and this is the next chapter. And I can't tell you how many people kind of looked ahead and said, I can't wait to what you have to say on chapter 24. My response is, I can't wait either, you know. Uh, This is probably one of the most difficult chapters in the whole New Testament. It's a chapter about prophecy, about eschatology. And somebody said the hardest thing to predict is the future. And the hardest thing to read about is somebody predicting the future. And so you wonder maybe, why don't we skip this? Why don't we go to something a little more practical? Well, this is very practical. Most of the ethics of the Bible come from the fact that we look forward to Jesus coming again and judging the living and the dead, and that he who has his hope purifies himself as he is pure. And also a great deal of the Bible is taken up with uh, eschatological issues. You can look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and they take up the same passage, uh, same uh, discourse in different ways. You look at the book of Revelation, the book of Daniel, and they're all eschatological, apocalyptic-type literature. And although many people disagree with how to approach a passage like that, they all agree that Jesus is coming back. And when He comes back, it will usher in the the end. People might be... Uh, pre-millennialists, post-millennialists, amillennialists, and uh, you know what that means. You know, pre-millennial believe that the millennial, uh, we will be raptured out, and then you'll have the thousand years millennial, and then Jesus will come back again. And have the post-millennialists, you'll have a thousand years of golden years, and Christ will come and set up the kingdom of heaven and earth. And the amillennialists believe that the thousand years are basically... Uh, symbolic, spiritual, and the millennium is between Christ's first and second coming. But when we read this passage, uh, you need to read it with what I would call uh, spiritual bifocals. You know, when you get my age, you have these glasses that have a line in them. You know, uh, uh, that line in them is at the bottom, it's so that I can see close up. You know, if I take them off, all these things kind of squiggle together. And the top part helps me see those people sleeping on the back row and uh, trying to keep Bill awake back there. But it helps you see close up and far away. And when you read this passage, you really do have to have spiritual bifocals because a lot of this passage is taken up in the near future that Jesus talks about, in the next 40 years or less. And the rest of the material in there has not taken place for thousands of years. So you need spiritual bifocals to understand what's nearby and what's far away. With that being said, let me read Matthew 24, 1 through 14 to give us a flavor of the passage. Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to the buildings. Do you see all of these things, he asked? I tell you the truth, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they asked, when will this happen? What will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? 
And Jesus answered, Watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name claiming, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you're not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nations will rise up against nations and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places, and these are only the beginning of birth pains. Then you'll be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all the nations because of me. And at that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other, and many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel, this king, gospel of the kingdom will be preached to the whole world as a testimony to the nations, and then the end will come. This is God's word to God's people. Let's pray. Father, help me and help us to divide your word accurately, faithfully, practically, uh, courageously, that we might live good lives, holy lives, as we await the Savior's coming or our returning to him. And we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. This week I've thought about Ken Owen. And the reason I've thought about Ken Owen is he used to tell a story to me, and I heard it several times. probably happened in Shreveport, you know. Uh, but Ken told a story about these two scholars who were presenting their view of when Jesus was coming back. And they had their charts and graphs, and, you know, they had it colored and had timelines and everything. And when they both gave their uh, uh, viewpoints, they had times of questioning. And one of the first folks to stand up said this, said, those are really good. said, I just want to know basically what's the difference between your view and his view. The guy said, well, I'll tell you what, if I'm wrong, Jesus can still come back. If he's wrong, Jesus can't come back. Ken would always say, that's the way it is. That you, you, you have this set of ideas that you think you capture God in, or you, you, you say he's coming in this date or in this manner or this time. Jesus is not interested in charts and graphs and times and dates and hours as he preaches this discourse. He is interested in preparing people for the trouble that's coming ahead of them. He's preparing his people for difficult times. He's preparing them for persecution and tribulation, to be deceived, uh, to be persecuted, maybe even killed, to see people fall away, others lose their first love. He's reminding us and them that the world in which we live is not really a playground. It's a battleground where we really do fight this fight uh, of the faith. And good soldiers are always prepared. Ligon Duncan talks about uh, Napoleon when he crossed uh, in the Battle of Waterloo. The Duke of Wellington called together all his captains, generals, and leaders and said, Now here's our plan. We have an international army, many of whom have never fought with one another. We're going up against the great offensive general in the history of the world, Napoleon. And his army is made up of veterans 
We are slightly outnumbered. Therefore, my plan is going to be to let him pound away all day long. Our only goal is to hold together until the Russian army comes. And then we'll have enough to take on Napoleon and we'll win in the end. I think that's what Jesus is saying. That we have to stand firm with the understanding that whatever happens, we're going to, quote, win in the end. That the Lord is going to be faithful to His people. Churchill said the same thing to his people at the verge of World War II and Hitler. All I can promise you is blood, sweat, toil, and tears. It's not going to be easy, but we're going to prevail. So let's look at this passage under these headings. Don't be deceived, and don't be alarmed, and don't fall away. Don't be deceived. Don't be led astray. Don't be tricked. Don't be bamboozled. Uh, don't be led to think that something that's going to happen isn't going to happen. And he says it's not just going to happen periodically. There are going to be many people, many people that will try to lead you astray. So you have to be careful. You know the truth and you know what God is saying in His Word. So you set the background for this. The disciples and Jesus are leaving the temple area. And the temple area is impressive, and the disciples want Jesus to, to say something about it. They say, look at these buildings. Now, we don't know probably a lot about the temple, or maybe you don't know a lot about the temple, but I've learned a good deal this week about the temple. It was built, uh, rebuilt and being renovated by Herod the Great. You know, the renovation started in about 6 uh, B.C., 6 or 9 B.C., and they continued to 63 A.D. And then the temple was eventually destroyed by Rome in 70 A.D., but the temple was being built and renovated for about for decades. And it was a massive structure. Josephus, who was alive and was a historian when... Uh, when the temple finally was destroyed, talks about it in his works. And Josephus says the, the foundation of pure marble was basically as big as a boxcar, weighing tons. That's the footings on which the temple was built. As you stood on the Mount of Olives where Jesus was giving his discourse, that all you could see glittering in the distance from the Mount of Olives was the temple and the gold on the top. Basically, everything outside that they could make gold was gold. There was this huge vine to remind Israel that God was a vineyard and they were the branches. And it was huge on the front of the temple. And what wasn't gold was white marble. And you could just see the beauty and the majesty of it. Scholars who have studied it said it was not only the most impressive structure in the known world at that time, it might have been one of the greatest architectural feats ever done. And Jesus says that this thing will be torn down and not one stone will be left upon another stone. And can you imagine the disciples, you're saying this is going to be torn down. Do you realize how you know, big these things are? 
And they were. The temple was utterly destroyed in 70 A.D. Titus came in. He starved the people to death. It's terrible. Starved the people to death when he had them so weak and feeble that they could offer no resistance. He came in and he not only destroyed the city of, of Jerusalem, he destroyed the temple. Every stone was broken down. And the thing I want you to know is the Christians basically had deserted Jerusalem. Why? Why had the Christians left Jerusalem? Because they read this and they understood what Jesus was talking about. This one stone would be turned up, not one stone would be on top of another. They interpreted that to be the wars and rumors of wars all leading up to the, seeing the Roman gather around the city. They realized, hey, what Jesus said is coming true. And they fled they took this as a warning when they saw the armies approaching. They, they fled. They left the city. They survived and Christianity survived and it spread throughout the whole empire. And so what happens in this passage is a lot of, this, a lot of the stuff that is stated and said occurs to warn the Christians about the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. Not all of it. And the rest of it is to prepare the Christian for when Christ will come in years to follow. And what Jesus is saying, don't be deceived. The disciples' first question after Jesus said this about the temple being torn down is, when will this happen? And when will the kingdom come? When will the end of the age be? And what Jesus is basically telling them, don't connect the two together. Jesus doesn't go on and say, okay, you're going to have the temple torn down and you're going to have these rumors of wars leading up to that. And then when the temple's torn down, then I'm going to come back on clouds. He doesn't say that. He goes through a whole chapter preparing them to live in difficult days, difficult times, persecution and deception. You know, people have always tried to predict when Christ will come. You know, in 1988, there was a book entitled 88 Reasons Jesus Will Come in 1988. I think he missed it, or either we missed it. Camping said he would come in 1994. Well, I want to tell you that uh, there is a website that you can go to that really does help you out. Did you know there was a, a rapture meter on the website that you can go to um, we okay? Uh, you can go to the website rapture meter and what it does it predicts when Jesus is coming again. And I just want to read from it so you won't be fooled. You might look it up and I it monitors 45 categories and gives a score for each and comes up with how prophetic activity is occurring. It acts as a measure of how stable the planet is. Categories such as satanic movement, volcanoes, earthquakes, severe weather, famine, drought, crime rate, global economy, interest rates, inflation, nuclear activity, drug abuse, civil rights, liberalism, democracy, and unemployment. 
and you take all of those and you put them in a computer, and you push the button and, you know, and all that, and it gives you a rapture index. An overall score of 100 means it's slow activity. Very little chance Christ is coming back. Moderate activity is 130 to 160. And the rapture index above 160 is fasten your belt. He's coming soon. And we're currently at 168. And so this bogus site tries to really deceive people into saying that if you do all these things in the right way, then we can predict when Jesus comes back. And we cannot. The second thing I want to say is uh, don't be afraid. Don't be alarmed. Don't be alarmed. Uh, you'll hear of wars and rumors of wars. And if you aren't careful, you'll let your heart be uh, disturbed. Let's stop for a second. Mr. Cotton's having some difficulty, and, and we're just going to pray for him. And I know over there that he's concerned. And uh, let's, you, you okay? Let's pray for Mr. Cotton. Father, I thank you for Lige and for his faithfulness to the church and to you. And I pray that whatever's going on with him would soon pass. I pray that he'd feel better. And I pray that you'd watch over him. We commit him to you in the name of Jesus. Amen. I knew that was happening and some of y'all were distracted. And so I wanted to make sure we could proceed with knowing he's going to be okay. But the second point is uh, don't be afraid. You hear these wars and rumors of wars, and then he lists all these things that you shouldn't be afraid of. You know, you're going to be persecuted, you're going to be hated, you're going to be maybe given over to death, and you're going to be deceived, and some of you might fall away. And he said, but it's okay. Uh, you know, don't be alarmed. Whatever's going on in the world, don't be alarmed. Do you watch the news sometimes, and you're so concerned with what's really happening? You begin to wonder, is the Lord coming back? Is He coming back tomorrow? And what Jesus is telling us, whatever happens in the news, you know, don't be alarmed. God is sovereignly in control. I can remember when 9-11 hit and uh, we were, I was getting ready for work and uh, we have a TV in the bedroom as I was getting work. The first plane hit the Twin Towers and I was kind of glued. I said, I wonder what happened, man. That was a bad mistake by, by the, uh, the, the, the tower. And then the second one hit, and we began to be glued to what was happening, and this was a terrorist attack. And I thought, wow, you know, my children. And then I thought about my son, Austin, who was in college. And I wondered if there'd be a, a war, and there'd be a, a draft, and he's draftable age. And I went down to Sherwin-Williams and just wanted to go talk to him and try to settle him down, but I was really trying to settle myself down because I was alarmed. And what Jesus is saying is, don't be alarmed. We live in this fallen world, and every age has wars and rumors of wars. Every age has famine. Every age has drought. Every age has all of these things. Persecution. There have been more killed in the last century than have ever been killed in the Christian history. And we're not to be afraid. And we're to trust God. And why are we to trust God? Because He's sovereign. He's in control. One writer says, nothing flows down through the channels of history that God has not already dug. History flows the way God wants it. He turns a king's heart wherever he will. And that helps you a great deal to understand 
how you're not to be alarmed because God is in control. That history is coming to an end the way that God says it. Pascal, which some of you know, he was a great mathematician. But not only was he a great mathematician, he was a great philosopher and a theologian. And one of his friends had a tragedy, and he wrote this. It's pretty profound and and pretty deep. But what he does, he makes his friend look at this tragedy in light of the sovereignty of God. He says this, If we regard this event not as an effect of chance, not as a fatal necessity, but as a result, inevitable, just, holy, of a decree of His providence conceived from all eternity to be executed in such a year, such a day, such an hour, in such a place, in such a manner. We shall adore in humble silence the impenetrable loftiness of His secrets, and we shall venerate the sanctity of His decrees. We shall bless His acts of providence. And Pascal said the only way to deal with difficult times is to understand the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God. Donald Gray Barnhouse was an English pastor of uh, early 1900s. And he was preaching in Scotland... And he had a break uh, for a week, and his family was vacationing in France. And so what he did was he decided he had a week's break. He would fly down to France to uh, be with his family and have time to fly back to Ireland to finish up his, his tour of preaching duties. And when he got his airplane ticket, the man told him, where are you going? He said, well, I'm going to France. He said, when are you planning to come back? He said, well, by Saturday because I have to preach Sunday. He said, well, I wouldn't go. Because, you know, this is 1939. He said, I wouldn't go because of the unrest, you know, in Germany with Hitler and all that. And uh, Barnhouse thought, well, you know, that's been going on for a while. It's not going to disrupt anything. I'll go anyway. Well, he went to France and joined his family. And as soon as he got there, he noticed the plane started passing overhead, diminished, fewer and fewer. And then finally he realized there were no more flights out of France. And so he had to take a train back to the coastland of France and then take a boat from France to, to England and then tra- go over sea to, to go over land, uh, England and then to Ireland. But he said, as I went through every stop of that train, he said, I encountered the same thing. There were men there with their bags packed and their families hugging them and crying. Because war had been declared. And as he was getting back to preach, he went through every little village and it was the same scene. Wives and mothers and daughters and sons clinging on to their dads and their brothers because it might be the last time they saw them when they boarded that train. He got to Ireland Saturday night at 3 o'clock, missed his Saturday night preaching engagement. And he paced the floors wondering what to preach, and he decided to preach from the passage that we just read. And he did this one verse, You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, and do not be alarmed. And every point he made as he made his journey, as he talked about his journey back and the families he saw and the young men he saw, and he said, Don't be alarmed. Don't be alarmed. And then he stopped and says, with all these wars and rumors of wars going on, this got to be the Word of God or it's got to be the Word of a madman. 
but it's the Word of God. And whatever happens in the wars or in the rumors of wars, that nothing can separate God's people from Him. Don't be alarmed. You say, that's hard to do, isn't it? It is. Sarah and I went to Tuscaloosa last week to marry Matthew Wood and Brinkley is a great event. While we were there, we had a chance to talk to Sarah's nephew, who's a doctor over there, and his wife had lunch with them. We wanted to see them because we had not been able to see them since their son in his 20s had been run over and killed. And so we had small talk at lunch, and then I finally said, well, how are y'all doing? And it was kind of like opening the floodgate, you know, that we began to hear all the story about Ryan, their son who had been run over on the highway. Ryan had been adopted. I think his mother was on drugs, and so he came into the world with that problem of a, a drug addiction. He never really found his place in the world, and even in that family. But he did make a profession of faith, but he struggled with this bipolar personality and all of that. He got involved in drugs, got involved in the wrong crowd, left the family, lived under a bridge for a while, and all this is in his, he gave it in his funeral, and he gave me the talk, so I'm not sharing family secrets. And what he came to is this, is that in God taking Ryan, that he was still good and that he was still sovereign, and maybe he's taking Ryan to save him from a life of grief and pain. And what he had to do next was something that maybe most people wouldn't do. He wanted to contact the woman who had run over Ryan. She had topped a hill, it was dark. She couldn't see him. It was a pure accident, but Jared said she was basically just catatonic that she had killed somebody. And they set up a meeting with her, and they told her about the sovereignty of God and that God was not caught by surprise and that she, instead of being guilty, she should realize she might have been part of God's plan to redeem him from his life, to save him from what was ahead. What a story. The sovereignty of God, regardless of what we hear in the news, we can go about life not being alarmed. The last thing is don't fall away. Don't lose your love. How do you do that? you got persecution and death and you got people that hate you and you have all these sorts of things, wars and rumors of wars. And, and Jesus makes this statement after saying all this that those who persevere to the end won't, will be saved. And you have that promise, those who persevere to the end will be saved. And you also have that alarming thing for those that don't persevere to the end, they will not be saved. And pretty soon you begin to ask, you raise your hands and say, wait a second, Pastor, wait a second. Don't we believe in perseverance of the saints? We do. But the perseverance of the saints is given to those saints struggling to persevere. 
we have turned that doctrine into something flippant like once saved, always saved. And if I, if I raise my hand or sign a card or walk an aisle or make an act or get baptized, I'm saved and it doesn't matter what I do or how I live from then on. That's not what the doctrine's for. The doctrine's for people who are struggling with their health, with their emotions, with their sin, with their life, struggling to hang on to the Christian faith, struggling to hang on to their love for Christ. God says, I'll never, ever let you go. It's the perseverance and the preservation of the saints. How do we keep going in difficult times? Looking to God for grace. God promise that whatever happens, my grace is sufficient for you. Wars, persecution, trials, tribulation, divorce, sickness, joblessness. God's grace is sufficient. If you haven't read Corey Ten Boone's book, you probably should. So much good godly advice there. Corey Ten Boone's family was involved in the same war that Martin that Barnhouse was involved in in the previous illustration. And they lived in a place where they were hiding Jewish people from the Nazis in the wall of their house. And they knew if they got caught, they would be in big trouble. And then they began to hear about people getting caught housing the Jews and saving them from the Nazis. And one day, Corey asked her dad, said, Dad, what happens if we get caught? What happens if they find the Jewish people in our wall, under our floor? And her dad said this, Corey, remember when we used to take a trip on the train? When did I give you your ticket? She said, right before I stepped on the train. He said, that's right, because I was afraid you would lose it. And God will give us grace right before we step on the train. God's grace will be sufficient. Our closing hymn says, Through many dangers, tears, and toils and snares I have already come. Twas grace that brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me on. Grace will lead us through. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word. Encourage us to be faithful. Give us grace to be faithful. Help us to love you with all of our hearts. Give us a heart to love you. And we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.